Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. In hope, we were saved. But a hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Those brief lines come from the Apostle Paul to Rome. And they explain for us in part a question you have probably often asked. If God is real, why doesn't he just show himself? Haven't you wondered that? Why be secretive? Why allow a planet like this full of conscious thinking beings who deny his very existence? Come down from heaven and show yourself. That would at least end atheism. Paul says, a hope that is seen is not a hope. Hope is nothing but a forward-looking faith. And God has worked in this world and not worked in such ways as to preserve and promote faith, which requires that its object not be fully seen. For if you see it, it's not hope, it's not faith. That's not faith, that's sight. And Paul says to the Corinthians, we live not by sight, we live by faith. There's something sensible in this, even to our plain reason. Imagine, for example, you have an expensive watch and you loan it to your friend. And the next week he returns to you and says, I am so sorry, I was at the gym, it was in my locker and someone stole it and it is gone. Now you have two options at that moment. You can either say to your friend, friend, I live by sight. I cannot believe that someone has stolen that out of your locker and that you've not gone and hawked it and taken the money for yourself until I have tangible, real, concrete, and scientific verification that that is so. Your word is not sufficient. Now that is one approach. It requires no faith whatsoever. It is objective. And it has killed your friendship completely. Because every relationship depends to some degree upon faith, upon trust. The alternative is that you can tell your friend, friend, I wasn't there. There's no way for me to know. But I know you. And you've been a faithful and a trustworthy friend in the past. And so if you say that that's what happened, I trust you. That is faith. And notice which of those scenarios honors the friend most. It's not the first. It's not the one that demands absolute, absolute verification. The friend is most honored by faith, by trust in his word, on the basis of his character. Faith honors its object because faith says Although I cannot fully verify what is being said right now, I trust the person saying it. This is a trustworthy person with a good track record, and therefore I trust you. And that helps relationships work. That level of trust. And God has worked in this world in such a way as to preserve faith in what he says about reality. And that explains in part why he doesn't just rend the heavens and come down. He wants to preserve faith at this moment. Now, that faith is not entirely baseless. It is based upon the character of the person. It is based upon, you could say, hints, although not something you can put under a microscope. But there are hints that the friend is telling the truth. If you have someone who frauds you over and over and over... It would not be wise of you to exercise faith in that person any longer. But in this case, there are hints that the friend is telling the truth. But they're only hints. And there's no security camera there. There's no way for it to be more than hints. So at some point, faith is necessary. And when you exercise faith in your friend, you are honoring your friend, saying this is a trustworthy individual. Faith honors is object. Similarly, in this world, is there a God? Some would deny it, saying, where's the evidence? He hasn't come down. 
You can't put it under a microscope. You can't analyze fingerprints. There's nothing that you can take in through the senses to give you an absolute and objective evidence that God exists and the things he says in scripture are true. Very well. That's true of all our relationships. But are there hints? You live in a universe full of hints and hints and hints and hints everywhere you look. Everywhere you look. But never the final conclusive evidence. So that faith may be preserved. That's the way that God has designed it. There's enough of the hints everywhere for your foot to have a bit of a footrest on the side of the cliff so the faith can climb up toward God by his enablement. So there's something there to work with. We're not just saying believe in a random tooth fairy on Pluto. There are hints that there is a God of such a nature, of such a being, within our own moral reasoning that we natively have, and within the created order, because it is an order, and even within scripture, there are always hints, and you have to do something with those hints, either dismiss them as coincidence, or accept them as suggestive of more. But again, if you want final conclusive evidence of the claims of Christianity, You will not find it. If that's what you demand, if that's what you require, if you think you're the one who sets the terms, you will not find it. But you will find hints. So that faith may be preserved. And we are coming today in the Gospel of Luke to the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And just as you might be surprised that God does not come down out of heaven and reveal himself immediately, dispelling all doubts, similarly, We have seen many people be surprised that this Jesus, if he is the Son of God, does not descend from the cross and show himself to be the Son of God. Why not make it crystal clear? Why not bring down the angels and destroy the foes and prove yourself the king you claim to be? There is really, in fact, many things about Jesus' death, as we'll see today, that suggest just the opposite. He doesn't look like a king. He's being crucified by enemies outside of Jerusalem on a Roman cross. This is not the way mighty kings die. And so if you've come this morning and you don't want to believe in Jesus, you will find plenty of reason not to. It will always be there. But if you've come open to the evidence, if you've come open to the hints that God has provided, if you want to know the truth, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So we're going to be looking at all the hints that faith requires, sufficient for a true faith, here in this text as we behold Jesus on the cross. Let's look at them now, Luke 23, beginning in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. There's enough in this concluding scene of the earthly life of Jesus to confirm the skeptic in unbelief. Those who come to Calvary with the intention of not believing will do just that. As scripture says, the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And scripture continues by saying, but to us who believe, it is the power of God. 
Those who come to this passage, those who come to Christianity, those who come to Christ wanting to know, wanting to believe, open to the evidence, open to the hints, will find absolutely and abundantly more so enough hints for their faith to plant its foot upon. This is not something that is unreasonable. Christianity is not some philosophical abstraction that's totally invented out of the head and is unreasonable. It has historical grounding. We see here we have ancient documents that support the events that took place. It's not unreasonable. The claims it makes resonate with reality as we experience it. It's not unreasonable, but it's not reasonable enough for the scientist. You cannot subject it to scientific theory and scientific examination. Product of the 1700s, a good product by the way, in the physical realm. But Christianity does not bow the knee to these methods. Therefore, what we're planning to do today is to look at the hints. Even in the very death of Jesus. For you can see this scene as confirmation, and many did, and many still do, that Jesus was not what he claimed to be. Not the Son of God and not the Savior of the world, but instead Jesus was merely a disappointed, failed Messiah. Perhaps a good example, but no more than that. If you want to find that, you'll find that right here. But if you come wanting to look at the hints, wanting to give them serious weight, saying, what has God provided for my faith to take hold of? Then you'll find that because it's all over this passage. So we'll be sort of, in a sense, climbing this Calvary of faith. And we will find first three major hints that Jesus is everything he said he was and that Jesus does everything he and all the prophets said he would do. Major hints, footholds, if you will, carved into the mountain of Golgotha for us to ascend by faith. Reason will slip. Reason cannot ascend in this way, but faith can. It's sufficient for faith. So we will look at the three hints that appeal to our faith that we can trust God concerning. And then we will look at, in the text, three witnesses brought in to confirm the hints for every fact to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So, these are sort of, I guess, places we can place our hands while our feet are upon the hints, confirming the things underneath. So three hints, three witnesses, demonstrating for all those who have ears to hear that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, and the Savior of the world. So let's begin right away, because there are several hints and witnesses here. And we're going to start with the three hints that are provided in this text, that Jesus, although it looks like he's failing is doing exactly what he intends to do and bringing salvation to the world. What is the first hint in our text? It's a hint. It's not absolute evidence that Jesus is doing what he says he's doing, but it is a strong suggestion, a strong hint. And it is the fact of darkness. Look at this again in the first verse. It was now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. Luke offers you a timetable. We don't count hours the way they did. They would count it from around the time of sunrise. And therefore, in this text, this would be from noon to 3 p.m. So sixth hour is noon, midday, approximately. It says about, about noon. And it goes to the ninth hour, which you do the math, that's 3 p.m. Might seem a little unusual that Paul would offer this. In the Gospel of John, he's using a different way of reckoning time so that at the sixth hour, Jesus is actually in front of Pilate. Not a contradiction. It's a different way of reckoning time. But here on the cross, as it's reckoned, noon to 3 p.m. Why does Luke go out of his way to make clear, as do other gospel writers, that from noon to 3 there was darkness? One of the reasons is because there's not usually darkness from noon to 3 p.m. Am I right? That's when it's brightest. That is when the sun is in the middle of the sky. If it's 
evening time and the sun is about to set, then re- recollecting this event, someone could say, well, you were confused. The sun had set. It was already evening time. You thought there was darkness. If it is the early morning, they'll say, your memory fails you. It's just the early morning. The sun had not risen yet. You thought that it had. But if it's noon, <laughs> you've got to do something about the darkness because there it is. And you know it shouldn't be there. For three hours, it's not a minute, three hours of darkness, noon to three. It's interesting in the history of biblical scholarship, there have been many, many, many attempts to account for this darkness that took place. So one popular theory, and God can use secondary means, so these could have happened, although I don't think they did. One popular theory is that it was an eclipse So the sun would be blocked out. And in the ancient world, these things always were portents. They always meant things. And therefore, this was an eclipse that took place. And that explained the three hours of darkness. The problem is that a Passover in which Jesus is crucified always takes place during a full moon. And you can't have an eclipse during a full moon. So that didn't happen. Another theory is that there was a sort of desert dust storm that covered up the sun. That's very creative. (laughs) How would you know? (laughs) How would you know if that happened? Okay, maybe. Maybe God used that. Maybe not. It's just a guess. Probably not. I suppose there's a certain irony here in all of the speculations that we make trying to explain away something that's meant to confirm what we're trying to explain away. It's a little bit ironic, but it happens noon to three so that those scholarly explanations are less convincing. And you can say, it's midday, something is off. Something is going on. The centurion's going to see that, at least. Can we prove that this wasn't a freak dust storm that accidentally took place while Jesus was crucified? Can you prove that scientifically? No. No, you cannot. But is this a strong hint that more than the physical was taking place while Jesus was crucified? Absolutely it is. It is at least as likely of an explanation that God himself directly caused darkness while Jesus was crucified as that there was a freak dust storm covering up the sun. That's at least as likely, yes? And that's what it was meant to be from noon to three to demonstrate something more is happening. There's no explanation in the text even. It doesn't tell you what the darkness means, does it? But if you were a Jew living in that day, you would know what darkness means because you have the Old Testament. And over and over again in the Old Testament, it is foretold that when the day of the Lord comes, this is the day in which the Lord will finally arrive on earth and correct all injustices. This is the end of the world and Armageddon, all those things that are coming yet in the future. When the day of the Lord comes, there will be the darkness of judgment over the land. And so... Just a few examples, in the book of Amos, the minor prophet, it says, on that day, I will, day of the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon, because that's shocking, yes? And darken the earth in broad daylight. So it's an obvious sign of something. Day of the Lord will have that. We know, in fact, that when the great day of the Lord does come, prophets sometimes speak in poetry and picture, but when the great day of the Lord comes, it seems that this is going to be fulfilled quite literally. And when we read in Revelation chapter 6, the opening of the seal, we are told, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And what's happening in Revelation 6 on the day of the Lord that's still in the future that we're waiting for is nothing more than a fulfillment of what another minor prophet had a prophesied beside Amos. This is Joel. He says, in the future, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 
If that's what your scripture said and you are immersed in those scriptures and your whole culture was shaped by those sorts of scriptures and you come to a crucifixion of a man claiming to be the son of God, the long-awaited Messiah who will come at the day of the Lord and bring righteousness and then there's darkness for three hours, you're probably not looking for a dust storm in the sky. You're looking for judgment. You're looking for judgment and the presence of the Lord himself to judge. Does our text tell you the darkness meant judgment? No. If you want it to mean something else, I guess you'll make it mean something else. But if you're immersed in that, if you're open to the actual evidence of what's happening here, then what can this mean but that Jesus, as the New Testament explains upon that cross, became sin who knew no sin? That Jesus, as Isaiah the prophet had foretold, is being crushed by the Father. That he might make atonement for sinners. Jesus is a substitute upon the cross. He drinks the cup of God's wrath. And therefore, as he drinks it, God gives this hint. Darkness for three hours. Darkness that means judgment. The disfavor of God. As he for three hours summons the entire weight of an eternity of hell and drops it upon the head of his son who is crushed, Isaiah says, crushed beneath the weight of God's just judgment. Not for his sins. He is innocent. The centurion will confirm that in a moment. This is an innocent man. He does it for the criminal on the cross next to him who is guilty. So that today he can be with him in paradise. He does it for you if you are in Christ. He bears the weight of your sin. This is a preview of the day of the Lord that you should experience. You should be the one crying to the mountains, cover me from the great and awesome day of the Lord. From his power when he arises to terrify the earth. And because of these three hours of darkness, it's never going to happen. Can I prove that? No. But if you're open to the evidence, what else can this mean? That's one hint, the darkness. Let's look at another one in verse 45. As you continue. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The other gospels actually tell, this, tell us that this happened after Jesus died. Which is normal. The gospel writers will sometimes for the reasons of theme, move events. And that seems to be what Luke is doing right here, as long as it's not a direct contradiction, which it's definitely not in this case. He's actually taken what's going to happen after Jesus' death, it seems, and he's moved it up because he wants you to think of it in connection with the darkness. Because the darkness is a great hint that more than a mere death of a disillusioned messianic figure is happening here. There's something spiritually taking place. And so Luke wants to mention now, in preview, that the curtain as well will tear because that is another hint that something spiritually is happening. The darkness means judgment. What does the tearing of the temple veil mean? This is almost definitely the veil that separated within the great temple, the holy place, the main part of the building, where you have the showbread and the candlestick and so forth, it separated that from a smaller room in the back of the building, a square room that was called the Holy of Holies, or as Hebrew idiom would have it, the holiest place. Here's the holy place in the temple. We're near God, but you go behind this thick veil and you're in the holiest place. This is where the Ark of the Covenant, when it was in the temple, was housed. And God promised that he would appear, he would manifest himself above the cherubim of that ark. That is where God on this earth was more present than anywhere else. In a special sense to bless. God is present everywhere, completely, don't misunderstand me. But he manifests himself uniquely to bless or to curse in certain places. And he had decided that in that holiest place, that little square room at the back of the temple, separated by a thick veil, that's where he would reveal himself most clearly. And therefore, in the Old Testament, you may, re may remember, God being a holy God, you were not allowed to go behind that veil. If you did, you would die. There were even two priests who offered incense, probably in front of that veil, but for God behind it in an incorrect manner and God killed them both. So it's not a place 
to play around. This was the holiest place. This is where God most clearly dwelt. And it was behind that thick veil and had been for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. The only person who was permitted to enter behind that veil was one man, the high priest, the highest religious officer. And he could enter there only one time each year on the Day of Atonement. And he could only enter there if he had slaughtered an animal and brought with him the blood to bring into that presence to make atonement for himself and for the people. If he did not, he would be struck dead. This is where God dwells. There was a lot of religious ritual that was required to purify him, to enter. There were cleansings of himself and of his garments. There were certain garments he had to wear. There were thing upon thing. This was a full-time job and he was dedicated. Once a year, he would enter in. People say that they would tie a rope around him when he entered in in case he died. Because how would you get him out? Because no one else could go in. That is the holiest place. That is the curtain that had stood there for hundreds of years. You don't even think about going in there. If you're a good religious Jew, you would not even think about going in there. It'd be like eating pork. It was completely forbidden. You would not do it. And we read in our text that when Jesus died, the curtain separating that most holy space was torn in two parts. Probably quite a shock if any priests were present in there at the time. This is not a thin veil that might accidentally tear. Again, it doesn't tell us why it tore, does it? Not in this text. And if you want to imagine that it was accidental, you can imagine that it was accidental. If you don't want it to be evidence of Jesus' claims, then okay, you can make something up. That maybe his followers came in and tried to rip it when no one was looking or something like that. But that's as much an act of faith as what we're saying, okay? We have no evidence of that. In fact, the other gospel writers say that this thick curtain that had been there for so long was actually torn from the top to the bottom. And it's not like a top you can kind of reach up and grab, okay? This is a high top and it's ripped from the top to the bottom. What could that possibly be suggesting? What could the hint possibly be? It's a very clear hint that God himself at the death of his son had accepted the three hours of judgment. His wrath had been poured out and now he reaches down and rips open the curtain and says, come in. It was your sin all this time that kept you away. That's why you couldn't come because I'm a holy God. But now that my son has been sacrificed, the true lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, for any who place their faith in him, forget the curtain. Come directly in. Right where I am. Through Jesus. Other scriptures say that Jesus' flesh was like that veil. It was torn that the veil might be opened and we could enter in and be with God. It's the miracle of the gospel. The book of Hebrews reflects on what happened this day and says this. We have this promise of salvation as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It's what we live for. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He fulfilled the high priesthood who would go in once a year. Jesus went in there spiritually, even into the heavenly temple, into the holy of holies there, according to which the earthly temple was patterned. And now we can enter in behind him and be in the very presence of God. Just as Andrew had said earlier with the tearing of the veil, this is not some physical location we go to, just the opposite. Where is God? Here. Absolutely astounding for the believer. He dwells within us. He's here. We have been brought to him. We have been reconciled. The enmity, the separation our sins made that required the veil. Upon the veil were cherubim. Again, this is a bit of a guess. The first time we find cherubim in the scriptures, they're in the garden, guarding the way so that Adam cannot come in, back into the garden to find God because sin had made a separation. So cherubim with a flaming sword, guarding the garden to prevent that close access, lest Adam should die. And now this massive veil with cherubim stitched upon it is ripped in half and God says, come in. 
If you don't want that to mean salvation, then okay. But if you're open to the evidence, that is a powerful hint for your faith. That not only with the darkness is God's wrath satisfied, but because of that, now we are reconciled to God. Jesus has opened access to God because our sin is dealt with. Those are two major hints at the death of Jesus. Let's move to the third one. The third major hint is the manner in which Jesus actually dies. Look at this in verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Could this have been the deluded cry of a disappointed man? Sure. If you want it to be, then that's what you'll see right there, of course. If you require absolute verification, absolute scientific proof according to your method of how you come to understanding, then that's what you will find and no more. But if your mind is open to the evidence, you hear in Jesus' cry one final appeal from the cross to the fulfillment of scriptures which were written hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. His cry is drawn from Psalm 31. King David, probably fleeing his enemies, crying out to God, where are you? Why am I being hunted? Why is my life so much at risk? And now we have the answer in part. Because David was meant to be a picture ahead of time of a greater King David, a greater king who is now upon the cross. And therefore Jesus, he quotes what David wrote hundreds of years before and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Just as David had said when death was only one step away from him. And that is true of Jesus. And so he fulfills the type, the picture of King David. Everything in the Old Testament. He has over and over and over fulfilled the prophecies. And here is one final prophecy he's fulfilling. And when he has done it, he breathes his last and dies. Now, Jesus had told his followers, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. This is why he didn't defend himself, although he could have, when they came to arrest him. And now what we find, though, is when Jesus said that, it's at least possible, though I'm not going to say it's absolute here, but it is at least possible Jesus meant that in the most literal possible sense. Because what you see with Jesus, a man who is affixed to a cross, suffering severe blood loss, and suffocating to death, is that our text says, he cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, possible but unlikely to do upon a cross, and as soon as he had done it, breathes his last. Many crucified criminals would remain on the cross for days, and you'll see later in the text Often people would come and break the legs of criminals so they couldn't push themselves up to breathe if you wanted them to die faster. When Pilate learns that Jesus has died so quickly, Scripture says Pilate was surprised. It's not usual. Just a hint that, do they take Jesus' life from him or does he lay it down of his own accord? Is this just a delusional man dying upon a cross like any other man would? Or is there something more happening at Calvary? And all of the hints, including the manner in which he dies, suggest that there is more happening. In fact, the Gospel of Mark tells us that the centurion, we'll see in a second, when he saw the way that Jesus breathed his last, that's when he said this man's innocent. There was something remarkable about it. There was at least a hint that the centurion picked up on. That he has authority They're not killing him. He's laying down his life. That's what's happening here. Again, it's another hint. The darkness, the veil, the death, all of these things, not absolute evidence, but they are fingers pointing eagerly. Look over there. Look, there's more happening here than just what you see with your eyes. There's not just the sight. There are things that faith can perceive and it requires faith, a reasonable faith because you're looking at the hints and they are pointing you to something else. And if you adamantly don't want them to point you anywhere, then they'll put their hands down. But if you're open to the evidence and you want to know what does the death of Jesus mean for me today, 
then all of the fingers go back up and they say, look, the darkness means judgment which Christ has taken. The veil means because he's taken it, you can have access to God forever. And the manner in which he died shows you that as he laid his life down of his own accord, he's going to take it back up in three days. If you want to see that, if you want to know what the death of Christ means, the hints will point you there. They are sufficient for the feet of faith, though not of reason alone. And just in case that's not sufficient, our text moves on and offers us three witnesses. Witnesses confirm. That's what witnesses do. Someone will tell you something happened. Okay. If you have witnesses, again, it's not absolute proof, but it certainly helps the hints have more credence, easier to believe, and therefore, we are provided with three sets of witnesses in our text who are all standing. And the text tells us at the very end, at least the last group, all they were doing was watching. But that's all they needed to be doing. Because they are witnesses confirming what is taking place. It's a whole lot easier, and you know this, to make a story up if nobody's there to contradict you. Your little child will come in and they will make up lies but it's a lot harder to do if their siblings were there who will tell you what the lies were. And therefore, we have three sets of witnesses watching these things take place. So when the New Testament was first written, you and I are so far removed from it. Obviously, everyone has died and for many generations. But when the New Testament was first written, the first people who were reading this was probably within the lifetime of people who actually saw Jesus die. So someone can come and say, there wasn't really darkness. You can go ask somebody that. They're still alive. Go ask them. It's a lot more difficult to make things up when the people are still alive. And Paul says to the Corinthians, there are more than 500 people Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. Go ask them if he really resurrected. Which is part of the historical basis of Christianity. Therefore, we have witnesses, and we have three sets because every fact's confirmed on the basis of two or three. It's not just one conspiracy of an individual. You don't even just have in these witnesses those who favor Jesus at first, but even those killing him. So it's a nice confirmation. So let's look at these witnesses. Here is the first one. Fairly unbiased centurion, a Roman soldier who had charge over a hundred other soldiers, so man of authority overseeing the, res or the crucifixion. Look at verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he, a pagan soldier, he who just killed this man, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Now, Jesus, the words Jesus spoke at that time were probably more specifically, certainly this was the Son of God. That's what we have in Matthew and Mark. But Luke, writing here to a Gentile audience and not wanting to be confusing, is probably interpreting the meaning of that. For when the pagan soldier says, this is the Son of God, he's probably not thinking of a trinity. But what he's thinking of, this man is the king he claimed to be, a Son of God, who is here, just as the sign says. And so... Luke gives us basically what the meaning is. He's saying this was an innocent man. He should not have been crucified. This is in Luke as well, the seventh claim of Jesus' innocence since the time of his arrest. Usually by people trying, who are against him, not for him. Pilate, Herod. Hopefully we get the point by now. Jesus is innocent. That's the point. The parallels to this reveal that a few other things took place at this time, and one of them was an earthquake. Right at the death of Jesus, there was the darkness. I imagine it begins to let up. There is an earthquake. It says even the rocks were shattered by the strength of the earthquake that took place. The veil is torn, although it's over in the temple, so I'm not sure if they were aware of that at the time. And Jesus, very unusually, seems to decide when he will die, cries out and gives up his life, and the centurion who had been standing by the cross, seeing the earthquake, seeing the goodness of the man upon the cross, praying for those who kill him, Father, forgive them, telling the criminal beside him who had mocked him, you will be with me in paradise. Seeing the way in which he died, almost having a command over his own death. Beholding all of these things and the darkness in the sky comes to the right conclusion. Now you could say to the centurion, you don't know that? 
These could be coincidences. You can't prove that this man was innocent or the son of God. The centurion doesn't care. The, the hints are sufficient for him. He knows this man is innocent. This may be the first post-cross convert to Christianity. Possibly, we don't know. It may have been that God turned his heart in that moment, opened the eyes of his heart to take hold of the hints, to take hold of the evidence which was sufficient for faith, and therefore by faith to ascend, to understand something about Jesus, at least his innocence, and that he's the Son of God. So there is the first witness saying, I believe the hints are sufficient. So that's one. Look at the second witness, group of witness. Verse 48. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. These persons may or may not have been the same people who stood before Pilate and cried for this man's blood. Could be them. Or just passers-by. But either way, they certainly are those who joined with the religious leaders and mocked Jesus from the ground of the cross. Saying, come down. Save yourself if you're the son of God. They were certainly not convinced a few minutes ago or a few hours ago. They were mocking. They were joining in the mockery of Jesus. The other gospels tell us. And yet now everything's changed, almost like the thief on the cross. There's a change of their demeanor. Maybe the darkness of the sky over three hours has now dimmed their countenance. Maybe it's the earthquake that's moving underneath their feet that's shaking their confidence that this is not the Son of God. Again, it's not hard and fast evidence that cannot be contradicted, but for the one who's open to the evidence... It is sufficient, even for them. We don't know if they were converted, but you see them now returning home. And what are they doing? They're beating their breasts, an ancient sign of grief, of brokenness, of sorrow. What can this mean but that now they regret what they have done? That the hints they've been looking at, the darkness, the goodness of the man, the cry, the sense of his own authority over what's happening, the earthquake, these for them are sufficient to convince them this is not right. There's something more than merely human happening here. And they return home beating their breasts. Notice too, it says they had assembled for the spectacle. Spectacle is something you look at. And again, just like the watching people of the next passage, it is so important to reaffirm that while we are talking about faith and reason, we are not setting them apart each other. This is not some kind of mystical, magical, superstitious faith in something that has no hint pointing to it whatsoever. This is not some kind of weird thing made up by some ancient person we all follow because there are plenty of weird things made up by ancient persons. We don't follow those things. So how do you know Christianity is true? This is different, for example, from, say, a Mormon friend you may have. Mormonism is really based upon one man by himself, claiming to have found by himself a set of tablets that he never showed anyone and translated into the Book of Mormon. Do you see some of the problems in terms of how could we have confidence in this? Now contrast that individual with no accountability to a recorded historical event which is also borne testimony to outside of the Bible itself by ancient documents, several, that this really happened, although not all the details are given. This public execution with at least three sets of witnesses watching the death happen, and then when the resurrection happens, over 500 people watching, and Paul says some of them are still alive, go ask them. Do you see how different this is? Sometimes Christianity is characterized as you just make stuff up and believe in it and there's no evidence whatsoever. There are immense hints all pointing. If by evidence you mean under the microscope, then no. If by evidence you mean the same way we make 99% of all our decisions on the basis of really strong pointers and then trusting it's true. Look, you don't know you have a brain, okay? Not being offensive here, okay? You never saw it, probably, so how do you know you have a brain? Well, there's really good hints that you have a brain. <laughs> okay? Promise you, really good hints. 
And yes, it's true, you could get objective evidence, but you're not probably going to. Because you say, it's sufficient that everyone else has a brain, and this is the way that brains work, and I can function, right? But if someone really didn't want to believe you had a brain, then they could find reasons not to. And it's the same with Christianity. If you're demanding the objective, absolute facts, it might just be, look, you just don't want to believe, okay? If you really want to believe, or you really want to know if Christianity is true, God is happy to oblige. He's not trying to hide himself. He wants to preserve faith. It's true. But he wants you to know him, and therefore he will oblige. And one of the ways that he's done that is look at the historical evidence. Again, it's not sufficient for just bare reason, but if you're open to the evidence, there's more historical confirmation for the act at the center of Christianity than for anything in the ancient world. And you have that even here, because by the way, the New Testament is a collection of historical documents, and so you have that even here with multiple witnesses who are watching, including this crowd, who were not biased. They were mocking Jesus, but now they beat their breasts and go home. And then two or three witnesses, so let's add a third, and that's in the final verse. It's really two groups in this one. And all his acquaintances, this would include a sort of subgroup here of the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, doing the only thing they need to do right now, which is watching these things. Although Jesus 12 had fled in the garden when Jesus was arrested, at least one of them returned to watch Jesus be crucified, and that was John. He was near the cross, the Gospel of John tells us. It may be that others of the 12, after they had run away, had come and now were among, here it says, the acquaintances who were with Jesus. They were following him. These are his followers. It could have been some of the 12, at least John, and it could have been the larger group of disciples who had followed Jesus, not among the 12. Whoever it is, there they are, and included are these women. And we're told in the other Gospel accounts that at least these three women were present, Mary Magdalene, then another Mary, and Salome, or Salome. Why is it important that these women be mentioned right here? You might think that's kind of unusual. Sadly, in the ancient world, female testimony was not given the same degree of weight as male testimony. So if this was an invented story, you don't make up women in that context to be the ones watching. The reason you would record this is if they were actually the ones watching and you can't avoid the reality of the history and that's in fact just what happened. And they are mentioned here as watching and that's incredibly important because when the resurrection takes place three days later, do you know who the three women present are? Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, and Salome. You can see how important this is by means of testimony because if you had a group of people who watched Jesus die and they went and talked to these other people and these other people went and watched Jesus resurrect, well then there's all sorts of ways this can be wrong. The people who claim to have watched him die could be lying. And then it doesn't matter. He didn't resurrect. He just fainted or something or never died. Or the people who claim that he resurrected, they could be lying. So then these people did see him die, but he never rose. But what happens when the same set of people watch him die and then move on three days later and there he is alive? That's the point. This really happened. They saw a man die, really died, saw the spear be thrust between his ribs, blood and water comes out. Everything confirms his death, contrary to Islamic teaching on Jesus passing out. It didn't happen. That's not what the historical documents record. That is invented. He really died. Witnesses watch him die. And three days later, the same witnesses behold him not in the tomb. He resurrects. The reason that we are given so many hints pointing toward the truth of what happened at Calvary and so many witnesses to confirm it is because you are about to leave this room right now and you're going to go out into the world and you are going to enter into a sort of thick, dense mist produced by the devil coming out of his infernal pit of deceit that wants to convince you every day through everything you encounter and every conversation you have that all of this is nonsense. It's not true. It's invented. 
And again, if you want it to be not true, you'll find reasons to believe that. And the whole world and your flesh and the devil are conspiring in this present evil age to get you to doubt things that, if you could think clearly, are really obvious. But they don't feel obvious because this is the world we live in. It's not neutral. It is set against the truth of God. And therefore, God gives you this text today to show you this is reliable. If you are open to the evidence and you want to know, is this true, that God has provided every hint up the hill of Golgotha for you to place the foot of your faith. And if that's not enough, then the testimony where you can place your hands of people saying, yes, those hints are sufficient. Everything is there for your faith to ascend, to believe, to see Christ, to believe that what's happening on the cross is true. The word of God blows in like a breeze and it dispels the mists of the devil so that you can see clearly. Here is Jesus Christ at his death. You're going to leave here and people have 10 trillion opinions about what really happened there. But it is the word of God with its fingers pointing that tells us this man died for the sins of the world. In the darkness bore your wrath if you're in him. Ripped the veil that you might encounter God and have a relationship with him. And after all of this as well, gave up his life on his own authority to show you that he has authority to give life to you if you will believe and follow him. Let's pray. Lord, we deeply thank you that you are not a God who is anti-brain. You're not anti-thought. You are, you right now perceive every datum Every piece of data in the universe you know, you're never confused, you're never tricked, and you're not against us knowing truth. You want us to know what is true in the most essential parts of life, salvation, you. So we thank you because we don't deserve the kindness you've shown in providing for us not only statements of what is true, which we would be obligated to believe, but appealing even to our reason while preserving the necessity of faith and wooing us, calling us, drawing us, working through even our objections and being more gracious than we ever deserve that you might bring us to yourself. Here you have won for us salvation at great cost to yourself and you extend the gift. That is more than we deserve. And then we slap it out of your hand and you, it seems if you were a man, you would destroy us immediately and instead you endure with us year after year and you pick it back up and extend it again and again, address our objections, woo us to yourself by your love. I pray for any here who are in that very place, Lord, that this would be the day when you bring them through the curtain into a living relationship with you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And for we who are your people, that you'd give us great confidence this week, whatever the devil should bring, to believe, to hope against hope, that we are secure, our sins atone for. There is no guilt remaining on our account and we are justified who shall condemn. We thank you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.